0: I think we have the best legal system. It's just the people that implement it. They get lost along the way and forget what their job really is.
1: He just kept on trying to remind
2: me that who was in authority, who was in control, and how easy it was for my body to be found in any alley of New York City. It's a tough prison when you have the guards going against you because they are
0: the biggest gang in the prison. They do that, they'll give a guy a life sentence and go home and eat spaghetti like it was nothing. And anybody that would say,
2: well,
1: why would you confess to something that you didn't do? My question to them would be, why wouldn't you
0: confess when somebody's threatening to kill your life? The judge, he said, how you feel? I said, I'm okay. He said, well, today is your lucky day. You're going
2: home. This is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have the New Orleans edition with two people who really exemplify and personify what's wrong and right about New Orleans' criminal justice system. And the star of the show today is Robert Jones.
1: In April 1992, a series of violent crimes were committed in New Orleans. One of the crimes was the killing of the British
0: tourist Julie Stott after which police received a tip and arrested Robert Jones.
1: A man who served 23 years in prison for crimes he said he didn't
0: commit is free tonight.
1: Friends and family of Robert Jones broke the courtroom silence with tears, then applause as a judge granted the dismissal of rape and manslaughter charges that had been thrown out, but that prosecutors (laughs) vowed to re-prosecute. Barry Sheck came down from New York (laughs) He's helped Innocence Project attorneys fight the case, which was originally reversed in 2015 when newly discovered evidence pointed to Jones' innocence. It's just extraordinary. Uh, you know, sometimes they say it takes a village, it takes an army to free one man who's wrongly convicted. This exoneration was almost 25 years in the making, and it came on Robert Jones' 44th birthday.
2: Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. And our other distinguished guest today is the fearless leader of IPNO, otherwise known as the Innocence Project of New Orleans. And her name is Emily Ma. And Emily is, as you will soon find out, a force of nature. So, Emily, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. So, Robert, take us back to your childhood growing up in Louisiana
0: all right. I was the elder of five other siblings. My mother, my mother had six children. I mean, we grew up poor in the poor neighborhood. I lost my father when I was at the age of seven. He was killed. He was a professional boxer. We had it sort of hard. We had it. it was it was hard. It was me. Like I said, we grew up poor. After our father was killed, it changed a lot of things for our family. The down next to our family. My mother, she had to. Unfortunately, she had to stop going to school, so she wasn't able to. Maintain a decent job to the extent to take care of all of us, right? So she had to take on odd jobs. So it was it was rough, man. It was rough growing up, but she made it work. And one of the things is I learned from my mother is that even though she took odd jobs, her mother used to they used to call her like the candy lady. You know what she used to do is she used to sell out of apartment in in the housing projects. She used to sell like different candies apples and different things that she made from scratch. And eventually that kind of like substituted, you know, her income in the sense of actually providing for us, you know. So my mother is the biggest, you know, my biggest heroes because she she made something out of nothing to take care of us. And, you know, in the process of me growing up, you see a lot of things in the neighborhood. And eventually I dropped out of school in the eighth grade. And, you know, I did regular things, you know, hung out, hung out, even though, I mean, my mother did mother and approve of it, but I guess not having that father fog, fog figure there is only so much that a, a woman can actually do to a young man growing up when she reached those particular stages that I had reached on that time. You know, I was in my maybe early teens.
2: And so you grew up where we are right now in New Orleans, in the epicenter right. of... The criminal injustice system. Right. So you're going along making the best of the situation. How old were you when this crazy scenario happened that you didn't even know about? Right. And what was going on in your life at that point in time?
0: Well, at that point, I just turned 19 years old. I already had two children. And I had big dreams and aspirations to want to, you know, I was always fascinated about business. I, I kind of like went on a mentorship with a, an older guy who I know used see. He was a former drug dealer, and I guess we would classify as being retired. So he started dealing with real estate, and I thought, you know, from there, my focus kind of like went there, you know. I kind of like wanted to get back in school, but sort of like was embarrassed because, you know, the age difference was going back to school. So I started seeking out help in those particular areas to try to get in programs so I can get back in school, so I can educate myself. Because I know if I say, okay, in order for me to learn, to understand the business world, understand real estate, I mean, I have to get academically inclined. So I know I had to go back to school. So that's what my mindset because I wanted a better life for my children. I wanted to create a better world for my kids because I know how we grew up, not no fault of my, my mother, but I knew that she struggled. And I wanted to change and break that particular cycle. So that's where my ambition was at. And all of a sudden, you know, at the age of 19, this happened. and it's kind of like, it really just drove things totally off. I mean, it really devastated my entire family.
2: Emily, let's, let's talk about this because this is a, an interesting case because it's not just one case, right? What happened was in 1992, there was a series of attacks in and around the French Quarter that Robert ended up being implicated in and that we now know were committed by an individual who shares his last name but nothing else, no relation, this was a very violent time in America and certainly in New Orleans. And this was a particularly violent series of crimes that happened in an area where the authorities don't like to have crime. Very bad for tourism when you have you know, serious rapes and, and murders and things happening in the French Quarter. So can you take us back and, and explain what this crime spree was all about?
1: Sure. There was a series of crimes that, at least as we know, began April the 6th of 1992. A man was committing robberies in his car. He was armed. He would pull up, get out of the car, rob people. And in some of the cases, he did more than that, or tried to do more than that. In the first instance, he took one of the female victims and raped her in the Desire project. He asked his victims to lie on the ground. And a week later, he robbed several more people in the French Quarter right around the corner from where he had abducted the first party of people a week previously. And in in the second night of his crime spree, he robbed two people. He walked around the corner, or pulled around the corner of his car in the French Quarter, and he uh, tried to rob a pair of English tourists who'd just arrived in town. And he shot the woman, her name was Julie Stott, dead. In that attempted armed robbery, Uh, a few hours later, he uh, used his car and went off and about a mile up the road robbed some people who were coming out of a po'boy store close to the French Quarter. And the killing of the English tourist, Julie Stott, was a very big deal. It was a big deal here in the newspapers. It was a big deal at home in England. When I say at home, obviously, I'm from England. England. Because New Orleans relies so much on tourism, because... It is horrifying to think that you could be on vacation just walking along the street and get shot dead by by a man wielding a gun. <laughs> and because, frankly, she was a young, pretty, college educated white girl from England, the case got a lot of attention. And there was a, a big reward that was issued for anybody with information that would help to find the person who had killed her.
2: Right, $10,000, Crime Stoppers, right? and That's that's, right. And uh, let's not forget, this is 25-plus years ago, so $10,000
1: was... Probably about double that right now in today's money. And, you know, as anybody, any police officer in this town or anywhere will tell you, when there is reward money offered, you get a whole lot of crap called in, right? And what happened in this case was a tip got called in named Robert Jones and his friends and was having been bragging about killing the lady in a bar or something like that or talking about it in a bar and the police, as they often do started with that name which is a, a method the police use they will, they will pull that name and see if there's anything to it the police had realised that the same person had committed all these crimes because it was the same car that was used and they were all done in the same area, the same MO the victim had to lie on the ground he asked for very specific things And a similar description of the perpetrator so when they get the name Robert Jones, he's a suspect in, in all the crimes, really. And they show his photo to the rape victim in the first crime, and she picks him out. As a result, he was arrested for the murder, which was the big crime that was being investigated. It was the big, high-profile crime.
2: Right, because if he did one, he did them all.
1: That's right. The same person did all of them. So Robert was booked with a series of crimes, including the murder. Uh, arrested, put in jail. His arrest was all over the newspapers. It was all over the British newspapers. It was all over the television. It was a big deal. They'd they'd got the person who killed the English tourist and done the other crimes as well. The problem is that after he was arrested and put in jail, the crime spree in the car with his own gunman continued. And Uh, it was a
2: distinctive car as well. It was a very
1: distinctive car. It was a big Burgundy Oldsmobile I think and it had a, like a Landau roof right and so when the police realised that the crime spree had continued even though they'd arrested Robert Jones uh, that tipped them off that they might have not got the person responsible and so the homicide and robbery detectives kept investigating the case and what they found was the man who owned the car, they found the car in the Desire Project and he had jewellery or things taken from the victims in each one of the robberies, including the last one in the spree, and including the the first one that uh, ended in a rape.
2: So this one came with instructions.
1: Yeah, he had the gun that was used to kill the English tourist. He had the bullets that matched the ones that were found in her head. He had the glasses in his car that the person had described the rapist wearing. He had jewelry or things taken from each of the victims. He lived less than a block from where the rape victim had been taken to be raped in the case. He matched the description exactly of the perpetrator that each of the victims had given.
2: And isn't it true that he had said to at least one of the victims that he was taking her to the neighborhood where he lived?
1: Yeah, he told the rape victim, I'm going to take you to my my neck of the woods before parking his car next to his apartment, basically, and taking her to an abandoned building in that building within the Desire Project.
2: And Robert, you didn't live anywhere near there? No. Right. So Robert also had a distinctive physical feature, which was gold teeth, right? Right. And none of the victims described somebody with gold teeth, which would be a harder thing than most to screw up.
1: If it was Robert Jones, you would not miss it because Robert has, he no longer has them, but but Robert's teeth, they were completely gold at the front. He can't speak without exposing his teeth. Some people maybe can, I don't know, maybe ventriloquist, but Robert cannot do that. And it is very, very obvious, if it is Robert Jones, that the person has gold teeth. There is no way that he could have committed five crimes and said many things, including the woman who was taken off and abducted and raped, who spent a while with her attacker. It would not be possible for him to have interacted with any of these people and no one have noticed the gold teeth. So
2: what we have now is a situation where somewhere inside police headquarters, they're going, "Uh uh-oh, Um, we don't need Sherlock Holmes in this particular case. Everything points in one direction, Mm -hmm. away from the guy that they had arrested, but they had made a big deal out of this arrest and had gotten a lot of attention, accolades, Mm
1: -hmm. media, Mm -hmm.
2: pats on the back. None of that sounds like something that they would want to have undone or exposed. They'll probably look a little silly. So they've got the real guy, but they still got the wrong guy.
1: So I think what happens at that point right now is anyone's guess, but I think it's pretty clear what happened, and I think it's a perfectly normal human reaction, right? I think we need to be very careful about what happened with the police when they found Lester Jones. The first reaction, when you're a police officer or a detective and you've got your suspect and you've booked your suspects and you've charged your suspect, all of us... All of us human beings have brains that exist to confirm our existing beliefs or suspicions, right? So if you think you've got the person and you find somebody who's got everything and the car and is clearly involved in this crime spree in some kind of way, your first reaction is, how are they connected, right? They must be because obviously I've got my person. And so that was their reaction. That was the police's first reaction is that they must be connected, they must be connected, they must be connected because we've got our person. And so they interrogate Lester Jones for a very long time, while in the process of executing search warrants on his apartment, his car, and various places that could have property connected to the crime spree. Did you know Lester Jones? No. So you had no, no connection to him whatsoever, no. right? Lester Jones says he first told police he didn't know Robert Jones. He was then in the custody of uh, at least one officer who's pretty notorious for his interrogation tactics. And after many hours of interrogation, questioning... Lester Jones says he does know Robert Jones. He can't name him. Actually, he calls him something else. And uh, it says that he lent him his car in exchange for jewellery or something. And, and there was a gun in the car. And one day he lent it to Robert Jones. And then it came back and the gun was still in the dash. It's some very funny story. As this is going on, then they're getting more and more property from Lester Jones. And then they find the gun and they find more stuff from the Stott homicide, And it comes pretty clear that Lester Jones is not just somebody who lent his car out for someone else to commit crimes in that he didn't keep anything from. Um, by the way, when they uh, executed all the search warrants on Robert's house, any places he used to visit places you know where people stayed that he knew, they found absolutely nothing connecting him to any of these crimes. Which would be a little bit of a it's red also, flag Exactly, as well. yeah. exactly. I mean, and the police have said that, you know, they, they knew there may be something wrong when there was nothing connecting him. You, usually, if, if you've been on a robbery spree, you're going to find something connecting you to those crimes.
2: Yeah, my guess is that by the time they were finished interrogating him, Lester Jones would have probably said that he knew Abraham Lincoln too. Yeah, right? I think he
1: probably would have done that. But he said he knew Robert. And then ultimately, he made some cockamamie story about how they all did the murder together, Robert. And and his friends, because they'd also booked Robert's friends in, in connection with this crime spree. And, and it's, a, it's a totally preposterous statement. But what happens is there are some, there's some really good police work in this case. And I think that, you know, very often these cases involve very sloppy police work. And there was certainly some of that on one end. But there were some good detectives. And I think where there should be a lot of credit given is a couple of the detectives, one homicide detective and one robbery detective, who even though they had this confession from Lester Jones, allegedly saying me and Robert did all this stuff together, and even though there was a couple of eyewitness IDs of Robert, they were and still are the kind of quality police that understand that that in itself is not damning, right? That it can be, but it, it, it is not conclusive. And that that's the kind of evidence that's very manipulable. And so they kept investigating and they kept investigating and they investigated whether these statements that he'd given in the custody of this officer who somewhat notorious, whether there was any truth to them. And they said, and they have now testified many times under oath, both of them, sadly, not at any of Robert's initial proceedings, but later on when they were called and asked these questions, they couldn't confirm any connection between Lester and Robert. There was no evidence connecting Lester Jones and Robert Jones. Lester Jones had been in prison and only got out eighteen months before this for for an armed robbery (laughs) that happened in the French Quarter in 1979. So maybe he got out a little little under two years previously. So there was no there was no sort of long period where they were together. They didn't live in the same neighborhood. There was just no connection between them. And so the police, who had figured that out, they figured that well we got this statement, but it's kind of BS. We're going to keep investigating and see whether that, whether our initial suspect really was good for this. Have testified now under oath many times that they went to the prosecutors and they said, we've got nothing on Robert Jones. It was one person on that crime spree. And it was Lester Jones. It wasn't Robert. And there is no connection between these two.
2: And the victims knew it was one person. The because they all,
1: were- with one exception, which I'll come to in a minute, all describe one person. And so what happens is you have the police saying detective james stewart who again like deserves a lot of credit here went to the prosecutors and he has testified it is the only time in his law enforcement career his 30-year career in law enforcement that he went to the prosecutors and said i arrested the wrong guy initially and he will tell you it was a bit of a black eye that it was a high-profile case we thought we had our guy and it turned out it wasn't him that somehow got lost (laughs) when i i mean i say that very loosely I, i think it i think it was never never taken seriously or never turned over And what happened is Robert remained charged on several of the crimes. Lester got charged with some of the crimes and they tried to just kind of have it both ways. The prosecutors, this is not the police at this point.
2: In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up, just like a game-winning play on the field, and almost got away with it. The Sneak follows a twisting story of a once-great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time it's like a part of my face and the thing is it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process warby Parker has solved the problem I just participated in the home try on program and here's what happened they sent me the glasses I tried them on in my office five different pairs I showed them to my friends I you know looking at other people what do you think this that the other thing I look in the mirror I picked the one that suited me the best and then I sent back the other four and here's the thing The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses... And you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone. And then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try on. And now... Introducing Scout by Warby Parker And Scout is for you people For everyone that wears contact lenses And here's the thing They're comfortable They're breathable And they're affordable They're daily contact lenses They're made from a super moist material That resists drying For lasting hydration and comfort It's everything you want from a contact lens Order a trial pack That includes six days worth of contacts For only five dollars Unreal And then receive five dollars Off your next Warby Parker order Learn more Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. What was going on in your head and your you know your psyche at this time? Because you're locked up now, right? Awaiting your the outcome of this. What? I assume you did you couldn't post bail, right? No. How much did you know about what Emily is describing that was going on in this situation? It was all swirling around you, but I don't know what they were telling you or what what you thought your outlook was or whether you thought you would be able to get
0: justice. At first, I thought it was a prank. Actually, (laughs) I really thought it was a prank because, I mean, when you knew for a fact that you didn't do anything and somebody's saying that you did it, it's like, these officers, it's got to be some type of joke. And I know... When we got to the, the station and they went to question, is I'm like, I'm telling you, I don't know, what are you talking about? I don't know nothing that you're talking about. You know, it's, it's really, it was it's crazy. Even at some point, after I got charged, I mean, I didn't know nothing what was going on. Only thing that I was able to get information about the situation is from the news, because it was on the news every day. Then at a certain point, that had became so frustrating, just to watch it. So at one point, I mean, I just didn't watch it, don't want to hear about it or nothing. I mean, I was just kind of, like, frustrated. In the back of my mind, I just I realized, I said, okay, maybe they might drop the case, or uh, I just couldn't see myself getting found guilty.
2: So you were in jail. Right. And the TV would come on, and you'd see yourself on the TV. Right. How strange is that?
0: That was crazy.
2: And then I imagine that doesn't engender anything other than hostility from the guards or other inmates, yeah. because you're now kind of a notorious guy, right? Right. And you're also like an infamous guy, but I mean, what a weird thing. Like, here you are just a regular guy, 19 years old, with a couple of kids, trying to figure out your life. Right. And the next thing you know, you're in prison, or jail, which could be worse than prison. Right. And you're watching TV, and there you are, this, like, notorious, like, m- multiple rapist murderer guy, like... Right. You're sitting there going, "Wait, am I even having a strange nightmare?" Yeah, or? Right,
0: right, and <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. As you say, you know, jail can be, you know, because during that particular time in in the 1990s, New Orleans, Paris, old Paris jail was most violent criminals is really was tough. I mean, I grew up in a tough neighborhood, so I know how to defend myself, and I had to defend myself a lot. In the sense of, you know, you hear people talking, you know, like, "Oh yeah, they're gonna." Send him, they're going to send him to the prison. He going to never get out of prison. You know, you can walk up on a conversation like that. I'm like, <laughs> and it's like you can't tell nobody that because poor people, especially young blacks, you know, it's like they must have did something. They're doing some type of crime and it was just the, the image that's perpetuated about that. It's like okay, this nigga rolled and did all this, and I'm like, you can't even explain that to nobody, right? You know, only very few people that may understand it, even in the back of their mind. Like, okay, them people ain't got them trouble with all that for nothing. You know, you can't even explain. So, at that point, I mean, I I really didn't used to talk to nobody. I mean, I just I kind of like stayed to myself, and a lot of people was fearful because I was kind of like a quiet person in a sense, and didn't know I was a person that will defend myself. So when it it, it is, you know, it's kind of like kept everything off balance, you know, it's like it was a crazy time You know, you got like I said, you walked up on a conversation that like Yeah, they're gonna send this nigga, such and such, they're gonna execute him and all kinds of stuff I'm like, you don't even know nothing about me
2: So Emily, back to you, finally comes to a trial
1: Four years after he was arrested, he was tried
2: Four years waiting for a trial He sat
1: in jail for four years
2: Wow let's just think about that for a second. Four years is just, if we just think about anybody listening, think about what the last four years of your life looked like and all the things that you did. And, and you're just sitting there awaiting trial. That's a crazy amount of time and it should be, it's, it's totally unacceptable. Emily, what happened to the constitutional right to a speedy trial? Where does that fit into all of this? Isn't that One of the central tenets of the justice system in America?
1: There are a couple of factors at work that meant Robert sat in jail for four years. One of them is, honestly, I don't think anybody from the prosecutor's office wanted to try this case. Because it was clear that Lester Jones had done this crime spree to anybody looking at the file. And Lester Jones was, before Robert's trial, was convicted of the Stott homicide. He was convicted of the robberies that happened right afterwards. So he'd already been convicted of that. Lester Jones was convicted of that and sentenced to life without parole. And he was convicted of the robbery that happened a couple of hours later. And he was charged with the robbery that happened after Robert was in jail. And I think that any reasonable prosecutor looking at the case thought he's going to use that as his defense. except there's a complicating factor which is that they charged robert with the murder as well even though it was a one-person crime they charged him with the murder by by presenting perjury to the grand jury information they knew to be false it's really a horrendous horrendous behavior by a prosecutor in this case so robert's sort of hands were tied on his defense or were because his defense lawyer was also asleep at the wheel his defense lawyer rarely showed up When he did, he did not do any investigation right away. Robert had an alibi. He was at his son's birthday party on the night this rape happened that he was charged with. Everybody there could have testified to that if the defense had spoken to them within two, three, four, five weeks, six weeks, two months, even six months, right? But he didn't. He rarely showed up to court. He didn't file any motions, he, wait minute, let's he didn't file any that. motions except a motion for a speedy trial after he'd been asking for delays for two years. It was it, Robert just is 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 a very clear example of somebody who gets completely lost in the system. Nobody really wants to do anything about it. The judge isn't going to push it. The prosecutor's not going to push it. The defense is asleep at the wheel. Robert's defense was criminally negligent in this case.
2: But I'm getting the chills when I hear you say that he rarely showed up to court. Like That sounds impossible, right? <laughs>
1: No, it's not impossible at all. Robert gets brought in, prosecutor's there, defense lawyer's not there, he just gets continued to next week. It was just for a status or something anyway. And so it just rolls along like that for years. There's a very basic motion in a criminal case called if there's an identification, and it's called a motion to suppress the identification, which would have been a very fruitful motion in this case, because there were a lot of problems with the way the identification happened. And it was very clear by the way the victim's testimony changed from what she told police initially to match Robert Jones, right? By the time of the trial, it was, she was just describing the person she saw in front of her. She wasn't describing the person she remembers from the night of the crime. And if you look at the police notes from the time, it's very, very clear that she's describing an entirely different person by the time Robert Jones is on trial from the initial description. A motion to suppress the identification is a basic, every single criminal defense lawyer with an identification case does it unless there is a glaring reason not to. That would not be the case here. Robert initially was appointed the public defender. That's what happens if you don't have a lawyer with you on the day that you go to be arraigned. They'll they'll appoint the public defender, and then Robert ultimately Robert's family scraped together to hire a, probably the worst purchase they've ever made, like hire a defense lawyer for him, because everybody knew the public defender was overworked and you know didn't didn't necessarily have the resources to do what they needed to do. At least that's the reputation, right? In the nineties here, and, and rightly so. They were they didn't have any money and didn't have any resources, and so when the public defender is appointed. They file all these boilerplate motions, a motion to suppress the identification, motion to suppress any evidence was seized, all the kinds of things a criminal offence lawyer does, for good reason. When the private lawyer comes on the case, he, he withdraws all those motions and doesn't file any of his own. So there was never any issue as to whether an identification of, of Robert, which was an incorrect identification, it turns out, was coming in at trial. He withdrew the work that had already been done and did nothing else for four years. He didn't even go to the trial of Lester Jones for the murder that his client was charged with or read the transcript of that case to see what they were saying at Lester Jones' trial about who did this crime. He then pled his client guilty to murder, to manslaughter in the Stott homicide after he'd got him wrongly convicted at a trial of rape. He then recommended that Robert plead guilty to four separate charges, including including the homicide that Lester Jones had already been convicted of in a crime that everybody described as a one-person crime and a robbery that Robert didn't even know he was pleading guilty to. And I guarantee the defense lawyer didn't even know it was a different incident either. He didn't even know he had pled guilty to that crime until 20 years later, we showed him the paperwork that shows it was a completely separate incident. And they snuck it in there, and he told him to plea, and he didn't know he was pleading guilty to a separate robbery. This defense lawyer is now suspended, I think, from the practice of law, but he is not permanently disbarred, which is a crime in itself.
2: That is a crime in itself. And of all the horrible twists and turns in this case... For some reason, it's really bugging me. I'm just imagining you showing up at court and looking to your right and to your left and not seeing your lawyer <laughs> no and going, what's going on here? Like,
0: what the fuck is going on here? Outside of family members and, you know, friends that were supporting, it's like me against the entire system, in a sense. <laughs> it's like I'm standing before a system and nobody have my interest. It's obvious I didn't do these crimes. But the idea of having no type of representation for my particular rights is like, it was crazy. So
2: now you end up getting convicted, sentenced to the most popular sentence in Louisiana, uh, or the most common, most popular among law enforcement, I would say, life without parole. Right. And you end up going to Angola. I mean, you're such a positive person. People just light up when they talk about you. And, you know, we were talking last night about how it took 12,000 hours of legal time Mm -hmm. of lawyers donating their time to free you from this grip that the criminal justice system had on you. And from being in that room with a lot of people who did the work, I can say that if somebody would have said, well, it would take 120,000 hours, people would have said, well, sign me up for that, too. I mean, like everybody feels like this was the best time that they spent because of the way you are. But how how are you like that? How is that possible when someone has been through this very profound experience of being abandoned, even by the people that are being paid to protect you, not just the system, but also your own team and then being thrust into this Angola plant plantation they call it a jail but it's a slave plantation how' would you maintain this attitude
0: well what gave me strength is it used to bother me to talk about it but I also I have to now because it's therapeutic but 1996 I was found guilty but at the same time within that same year I lost my brother my brother was killed and you know my brother he was he was maybe a year well two years younger than me but we did everything together coming up and he wasn't like only a brother; he was like a, a son of me because, like I said, I was born like a big brother, a father figure. And you know, my brother he, he he dropped out of school as well, and he he sold drugs. You know, he kind of rose to a level of selling drugs that kind of thing was for guys in that particular neighborhood. And he was one of my my supporters in the sense of you know being able to help my mother, out, even though you know she she didn't condone it; she always disagreed with that type of action, but he helped out, and he helped me out. He was helping me out because he knew that I was innocent in prison. I couldn't afford an attorney. So he, he sold drugs to raise money to try to get me a better attorney, and he lost his life because of that. He lost his life. So from that particular stage, from that point right there, I decided that I wanted to make a, a change that was the most pivotal point in my my life in 1996, and I decided that I'm gonna fight for justice. I'm gonna get out of prison, and anywhere I see injustice, I'm gonna stand and fight because I feel like, you know, he the most courageous person in, in my eyesight because he gave his life to try to save minds. So, from that point, I re-educated myself. I went got my GED. I enrolled in school, got my GED, and I sit and try to master. It. Every aspect of life, I could, because I wanted to to be a beacon of hope to other people. So my method, what I use is, I kind of like detach myself from any type of circ- circumstance in the sense of like de- being denied. Like I always always him <laughs> Like I used to get denied all the time when I started doing my pro litigation. You know, it was hurting at first, and then it started hurting lesser because I realized that they were only denying the writ that they wasn't denying me. I had to detach myself from it, and I realized that everything is to take a process. And I'm not saying I don't never get frustrated or get discouraged or hurt, because I'm a human being. But I don't allow nothing to just to devastate me like that no more. You know, and I just kind of like keep on going no matter what it is. I just have to deal with it. Whatever faced me, I don't care what it is. I want to face it. I'm not afraid of anything, anything, anybody, any system. No. I'm not afraid of nothing. I'm just face me with it. I'm not afraid.
2: I could see that, and it is, it is, and I know I knew, I'd heard that aspect of your story, and it really knocked me out. I mean, the idea that in the process of the system trying to steal your life to actually steal your brother's life, because right. in a very real way, he was, in this case, a sort of, I mean, you can't really say it any other way, he was a heroic figure in that he was out there doing what he was doing, not because he wanted fancy jewelry or right. whatever else, but so that he could pay for a lawyer, which you should have had in the first place. Right. So, Emily, how did this seemingly impossible situation, up against the odds as much as you could be, how did you unravel this?
1: We started looking at Robert's case in 2004 before Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And we were looking, uh, because it was very clear to us that if we could find the rape kit from the rape we could probably exonerate him because it was pretty clear to us that he was innocent. And so we we looked for it and it, it was lost. It had been thrown out or destroyed or just gone. All the biological evidence that could be tested had been thrown out. Before Hurricane Katrina, and I say that because a lot of uh, a lot of evidence got lost in Katrina, and so there's uh, there are cases where you look now, and if it was a pre-Katrina case, the evidence is likely gone. But this was just the general negligence of New Orleans before Hurricane Katrina flooded the evidence facilities. So we we looked at that, and we wanted to help Robert, but then when the evidence was gone, uh, we came back uh, post-Katrina. We also we talked to Lester Jones, and he said yeah, I don't know this guy. They made me say, oh, no, no, I don't know who he is. When we were screening the case to see if it would be a good case to do DNA testing on, and when, when he said that to us, and we we were just doing it for purposes of checking out whether we really, really thought Robert was innocent and DNA could help him. That made us really understand that Robert was, was completely innocent and, and they'd screwed this up royally. So we couldn't do it for DNA testing. And then when we came back after Katrina, we didn't really have the resources to do his case at that point because it was a big and very, very complicated case. It was not just the rape case, but it's the homicide plea and the subsequent, the subsequent cases. And it was going to be a very complicated, long struggle. We kind of knew that, and we also thought Robert's Robert's a pretty good lawyer. He may be able to do it himself. Frankly, we knew he had some good information, including the stuff from Lester Jones. And and we're like, well, he lets—I mean, like a good judge could give him relief with what he has. And he was—we knew he was litigating, so we stayed in touch with him, but we weren't working on his case at that point because of our resource issues. He got denied. You know, we're looking at a case with a guy that we're convinced is innocent. There's no physical evidence. They've lost the district attorney's file, which many times in these cases is the source of exculpatory information that can get a conviction thrown out if, if the person is innocent. So they didn't have the district attorney's file. They'd lost the physical evidence. He'd exhausted his appeals. He had. Ten, he was, he was charged and convicted of 10 separate charges from four three different crimes, four of which he pled guilty to. He was sentenced to life without parole. He had eight sentences of 25 years on top of that, plus a 20-year sentence. And he was, <laughs> and he'd had two post-conviction applications which had been rejected now, which means he is procedurally barred and time-barred, right? So all that, I have a, a really great colleague who was, who was uh, my co-counsel on this case for many years and who looked at it at that point and he's like I, I think we can get this guy exonerated and I thought he was joking actually, but he explained that he thought we could get some more information and in that the, the way where it would come from. And, and I said, well, let's do it. And uh, that was in 2009. And we litigated for a long time. And, you know, the, the default, the default, especially for someone who's tried to get themselves out of prison before, is deny, 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 right? You're out of time. You're too late. You filed this before. It's the same information. It's not the same information. We found a whole load more information in the police files than Robert had been able to get himself from prison, including details of Lester Jones's crime spree, which had never been turned over to, to Robert, including the initial descriptions of the rape victim in the case, which clearly matched Lester Jones, not Robert Jones, in key ways in which they were different. In the ways in which they were different, her initial descriptions matched Lester Jones, not Robert Jones. We found information in the in the Lester Jones files at the district attorney's office showing that they had presented perjury, basically, to the grand jury in Robert's case to try to get an indictment uh, in the Stott homicide. And then we talked to the police officers who said, oh, no." That, that, that we figured out that wasn't Robert Jones. We told the prosecutors that. So, you know, at that point, we had a lot of information that most reasonable courts would look at and say, this man does not need to be convicted of this anymore. But it still took us seven years. And we filed in 2010, and we spent the first three and a half years arguing over whether he was too late to bring all this information to the courts, which... He couldn't have got privacy. He'd been doing his best to get whatever he could from prison. And so we did that many times in these cases. What you argue about for a long time is whether the person even has the right to be there in court presenting their new evidence. So we did that for three and a half years, 2010 to, to the middle of 2013, right? right? And then after that, we presented the evidence um, in, a, in a hearing late 2013 in front of a judge here in New Orleans. And uh, it included testimony from both the two main detectives who investigated the robbery spree and the the homicide. We had all of the police documentation in the record. We had witnesses. We had a lot of people talking about the fact that there was no connection between Robert Jones and Lester Jones. We had expert witnesses and so on. Um, And the judge, you know, she took a few months to... uh, deny Robert, say no, there's nothing, nothing, nothing new under the sun. And so then we took what's called a writ to the appellate court here and said this, it is clear that all this information should have been heard by the jury that convicted Robert Jones. It shouldn't have even, shouldn't have even got as far as a trial when you've got all this information that it was clearly the wrong person, including the police telling you that you've got the wrong person. And uh, so we took that appeal and the appellate court took it on and they threw out Robert's conviction in, in late 2014, October, 2014.
2: So October, 2014, you're both in court.
1: No, no, so... We argued it in September, which is the court of appeal. So so Robert is not present for that because it's an appellate court, right? It's not the district court. Right. If you're in prison, you get brought in for something that involves taking evidence or testimony. So you get brought into the district court, which is like the trial level court. After that, Robert's family was there when we argued it in the court of appeal. Bree was there. And Kendra, I think, came. But it's just lawyers in court arguing. Not, there's no right to be present if you're if you're locked up for something like that. So we did that. And then they, they rendered a decision pretty soon after that, throwing out his conviction, which of course the state then appealed to the Supreme Court. So then that was another seven months, I think, pending in front of the Louisiana Supreme Court, which did not overturn the appellate court, right? They they declined to overturn the appellate court. So by June 1st, uh, 2015, Robert's new trial was final. That meant he really was getting a new trial. So then he's pre-trial again. In June of 2015, on the rape case, we approached the district attorneys. We said, this is a case you should absolutely dismiss. It's clear it wasn't him. The whole thing is a mess. You should absolutely dismiss it. And the district attorney's response to that was... He's welcome to take a plea if he wants to, and he can plead to anything. We don't really mind. They were fine with him being out of prison. They just had to have him convicted of something in their minds. So then we moved to get the judge to remove herself from the case, the judge who had denied him relief previously, because at that point they revealed a memo in their file that they didn't even reveal to us while we were challenging Robert's conviction that proved exactly what Robert had been saying since 2006, which is that Lester Jones was asked to testify at Robert's trial by the prosecutor that he knew Robert Jones and Lester Jones said to the prosecutor no I'm not going to do it I don't know him those statements that the police kicked out of me were not true so the only connection they ever had between Lester and Robert were these statements by Lester Jones Lester told Robert and Robert filed that stuff in court in 2006 and you know an affidavit and Lester Jones came and testified in court in 2006 for Robert when he was basically a pro se litigant I didn't know Robert Jones. The police made me say I did. I didn't know him. And I told the prosecutor that before trial, at Robert's trial, at his rape trial, where the prosecutor spent the entire closing argument saying that they were friends, they know each other. Lester used to lend Robert his car. That was his closing argument. After the man had said, I don't know Robert Jones, and there was no, no evidence entered at trial that they knew each other, and Robert had said that there's there's a Brady violation. here. There's exculpatory information that, uh, that should have been turned over, which is that Lester Jones told the prosecutors he didn't know me. And the courts in, when he was pro se in 2006 and seven had ignored it. And when we brought his case back to court, we had added that. We said, you know, in, in addition to all the other stuff we found, here's the evidence that Lester Jones told the prosecutors that's Brady. That is exculpatory information for Robert. Favourable. The jury should have heard that Lester didn't know Robert, right? Because the crimes all happened in Lester's car and he's got all the jewellery. That's an exculpatory fact. The prosecutor owed that to the defence. And when we were on the case, all through the courts, the prosecutor was like, this, you know, this this sudden made up thing that Lester Jones said about not knowing Robert is unbelievable. And the courts repeatedly rejected that part of Robert's challenge. And in the DA's files, a memo confirming the conversation that Lester Jones had had with the prosecutor the day before Robert Jones' trial, telling the prosecutor he didn't know Robert Jones. And they turned that over to us after we'd managed to win Robert's case. And at that point, we said, you cannot be trusted. (laughs) This DA's office cannot be trusted. And the judge who had denied Robert relief was actually a DA for some of the part of the time that Robert's case was being litigated in 2006 and 2007. And we said at this point, that memo was in one of her files, one of her ADAs didn't turn that over while arguing that Lester Jones was lying, that he didn't know Robert. Post conviction, like no no one can be trusted. We need a new judge. Ultimately, we didn't ask the DAs to recuse themselves yet, although we may have got there if they had continued what they were doing uh, in in the pretrial case. So that's when we got a new judge on the case who said, Yes, first of all, I'm going to give this man bail because it's pretty clear he's probably not going to get convicted again, and that's a factor you consider. And I'm going to kick the old judge off the case because she could be a witness in why it took so long to disclose this memo and so on and so forth, right? That's also when we filed the motion to bar them reprosecuting prosecuting him just because of the decades of misconduct at this point. And so because because a judge let him out on bail, he didn't have to take a plea, which a lot of innocent people do, to bring these wrongful conviction cases to an end just so they can come home, especially if they have kids. You know, we have had several clients who've done that. But because we'd got, already won him a new trial, he was out on bail, so he was able to stare down the DA and the DA blinked first and he dropped all the charges in January of this year on his 44th birthday.
2: Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com WRONGFUL. That's BetterHelp.com/ wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. BetterHelp.com/ wrongful. So they dropped the charges on your birthday. You'd been out for how long at the time that the charges were dropped?
0: Right at a, a year. A year. Over, right? over a year. Yeah. So
2: what happened? Did Emily call you and say this is it? Like how'd you find out? Remember that night?
0: Yeah, he did.
2: Describe that moment. How'd it happen? Who that, broke
0: the good news? Emily.
1: Richard Richard let it, me Emily, have that privilege. Yeah, My <laughs> co counsel. That.
0: Emily broke the good news. She she called me. What'd you say? <laughs> she <laughs> she said that uh she told me how the process was going to go and, you know, everything that we had to go through the process. But they was going to drop the charge. They called her and told her. I said, wow, this is crazy. To be was... clear,
1: two days before they'd asked him if he wanted to play again. Right.
0: Actually, yeah, they, they called. <laughs> she, I also received a call in regards to another plea. We discussed that, that everything was off the table. I'm going to fight these people, head, nail, tooth, and everything. Well, I'm a fight with all my fiber my spirit I'm going to fight him I don't you don't even talk to me about no no how, time deals How
2: long was that phone
1: call We were in the middle of a multi-day hearing at the time right It wasn't just like you know all of a sudden out of the blue So we were at the end of a long day in court preparing for the next day in court we were going to have some some fun witnesses both Richard and I were kind of looking forward to and uh, they called that evening and and you know to be to be fair to the assistant district attorney he is the one we had been talking to and he had recommended that resolution to his boss and I had ultimately got approval. And he was very, he's a professional guy. So he and I talked for a minute and he guaranteed me that it was not something that was still up in the air. It had been done and that they were calling in the victim to tell, tell her that it would be happening, not to ask her permission for it to happen. And so mm. we just knew that that had to get done before, before. So we had a day then of not being in court <laughs> and then we went back the next day.
2: So, Emily, is there anything you'd rather do for a living? How how satisfying was that day? How much joy did you get from that? I mean...
1: <laughs> the Robert Jones day? Quite a lot. Now, I, my problem is I can't think of anything else I'd rather do for a living, and that's, uh, that is... It's hard. But the anger, right? I am very, very angry about what happened to Robert, and, and he, I, I'm more angry than he is because I have not had to deal with my anger in a prison where it would only destroy me. So I still feel... Shame and, and horrified by what they did to him and what good people allowed to happen on their watch, too. And I think that that is, you know, it's very, that is a very, <laughs> like, anger is an energy, right? <laughs> it's a very motivating force. Right. But it's real. Right. And I feel when I see people who were involved as if I can't be nice to them. I can't think you're okay because you let that happen.
2: Yeah, it's not okay. There's nothing okay about it. I don't know how people go so far wrong that they lose their humanity and they, you know, even though in this line of work, you and I see it over and over again, but it still just doesn't add up to me. I don't, I don't get it. I don't. I can't relate to it. I can't I can't sugarcoat it. And it's weird because the exonerees are much better at it than we are. Great, because we mean, haven't
1: had to deal with what they have. Right.
2: <laughs> they, they, they find this grace, which is beautiful and, and inspiring. I guess you're right, though. For us, I never thought of it that way. For us, this continual state of anger that we find ourselves in drives us forward. And so that works
1: for us. And I guess that's just the way it is. I do want to say that the problem, I think, and the thing that maybe makes me most angry about Robert's case is I do see exactly how all that happened. And I do see people that I know and people who have made other good decisions in their lives. And and I I think that the normality in some ways, like the utter abnormality of the extreme version of what happened to Robert is horrifying. But actually, it's so bloody normal like all of those people and those players and that system works that way every day and I think maybe the reason I find his case most upsetting is I can see how each of those decisions were made and how or not made or how all of those things didn't get done that needed to be done and how no one had time to pay attention and how somebody assumed this and somebody assumed that and somebody thought they weren't really breaking the rules with the exception of the one thing that I think screwed everything up which was knowingly presenting a lie to the grand jury other than that I see how that train went and And I think I see it a lot.
2: Yeah, I see it a lot, too. I mean, this is a particularly crazy case and a particularly backwards and corrupt system in this state and city that we're in right now, New Orleans, Louisiana. But at the end of the day, Robert, you're here. um, (laughs) And that is ultimately the great part of this story and you've now reconnected with your family. I know your beautiful daughter was out with us last night. Mm-hmm. And the evidence would show, from having seen her last night, that you did a pretty remarkable job of being a, a responsible dad, even from being hundreds of miles away, locked up. Right. You never lost sight of those responsibilities, which is extremely admirable. To um, all
1: three of his kids as well. and the Two of them right. live further away. But he's, right. he's been an amazing father to his right. children.
2: How are the kids? All of them doing OK. That's a miracle, too. <laughs>
0: yeah, right? All of them done well. Uh, One of the main reasons, like I said, as I re-educated myself and I started understanding the world that I lived in and the world most people live in, is that statistically wise, they say that, you know, generally white when your father, especially a young black father, when they go to prison, that generally their children follow. And me understanding that from uh, being educated I see that wasn't going to happen to my kids. I wasn't going to allow it to happen to my kids. So I, you know, that forced me or compelled me in the sense that I kind of like make sure they was on the straight path too. So that was one of the things outside of just having a, a responsibility, responsibilities, having a love for your own children, but to make sure, to make sure that these are, them follow that those statistics. And my thing is, you know, and I tell people this all the time that, and I know Emily, as <laughs> well as yourself, you get frustrated about it and y'all get angry, and you should be. And my anger and frustrations about the situation, is I think, like you said, we kind of like look at it different. I don't feel like justice has been served until the system is, is fixed and to the point where you can't do it to nobody else. You know what I'm saying? Where you can't really—and I'm not saying the system actually be perfect, but they got things here, especially here in, in New Orleans— that they got processes, you know, that that can happen, that that system can actually be fixed, because those decisions that they make and they'll end up to a practice of law, this silliness or foolishness, or this no care for human life, decisions that they make really affect people's lives. You know, you think about all the years that you know, Harry Connick, and then you have another administration, then you have Canada Zero, all these hundreds and hundreds of people that you send the prison, um, innocent or, or not, but for the most part, those who are innocent. When you make decision to do that, you're affecting their children's lives, their mother' lives, their sisters, their brothers, their family, their friends. You change the dynamics of those people' family, and you describe things. You know, you destroy things when you take that man from out the household, or that male figure from out the household that people have a lot of respect for and a lot of love. You have kids go off into different directions, like their sisters, their brothers, their aunts. They changes things, you know, their mother, you know? And my mother's a strong woman. She's a strong woman because she dealt with a lot. She lost a lot. She she dealt with my father's death. She dealt with my brother's death. And she had to deal with the fact that I was gone for a crime that she knew how to commit. And she had to deal with that. That weighs heavily on her. You know what I'm saying? Those decisions affect a lot of that, change a lot of lives. And that's the thing. That's one of the key things. And that's what I. That's why I fight. That's why I fight the way I fight. You lend assistance. Anything towards what's right. That's that's all. That's all I want. That's how I feel. That's how justice uh served me, in the sense of fixing that system so they wouldn't be able to do it to nobody else.
2: I do want to have you talk a little bit about your
0: art. All right. One of the things I do with with all I paint issues in regards to like social justice issues. I paint issues that deal with that, and I, I feel like. Art is another way, another area that I, I feel like it can be effective. When I do a piece of art, I'm more like hopefully that you can look at that particular expression and over a period of time or if you just look at it every day whatever, that it actually can change your perception about this particular issue, that expression that I'm trying to convey to you. And if I know if you can change the way you think about something, ultimately it can change the way you act. About some, so that's what I kind of like do with my art.
2: I've seen it, and it's beautiful. Every painting has a an element of your philosophy, right? right? That right. Uh, of social justice and of a strong viewpoint of right and wrong. And, right. And, and that it really hit me hard. I know you're doing five different things every day in terms of work and building your new life. But talk for a second, if you would, about the Freedom Foundation and what it is and how people can get involved.
0: The Freedom Foundation is a nonprofit organization that I co-founded with Daniel Rito and Jerome Morgan. Well, actually, it's created for to mentor the youth and to give them directions so they wouldn't be find themselves in a the situation like we, even though we didn't commit these particular crimes, but we still became part of the massive incarceration problem that's happening in this country. So we kind of like mentor them by giving them our experience and allowing them, or uh, helping them acquire skill set, then it can prevent them from, you know, going and commit crimes and hanging out with the wrong crew of people and falling victim to the system. You know, is there a Freedom yeah. Foundation website? Yeah, freedomfoundation.org.
2: Okay, so that's Freedom Foundation. F R E E D E M Foundation.org.
0: And that's that's exactly what it mean. It mean like free them.
2: Double meaning. I like yeah. it. So Robert, we have a tradition here at Wrongful Conviction, which is that we turn the mic over to you, the star of the show, the exoneree, for any closing thoughts that
0: you want to share. The essence of this particular story, or my story, as I always tell a lot of people, is that you look at all of the obstacles or the odds that I had to overcome throughout my childhood, through, I mean, through now, and it should be able to inspire you to withstand in knowing that If you stand, I mean, if you put whatever in your mind, you can stay uh, determined and focus on whatever your aim is, Whether whatever it is, no matter what you go through, whatever life throws at you. If you just keep on pushing forward, then I think that you can overcome anything. That's the essence of what I want people to get from my story. You know, like I said, I know... What happened to me is dramatic, and what happened to a lot of the is so dramatic. And, I mean, it, can, it touched people. I mean, it hurt me. So sure I know it hurt a lot of people, but for the most part, I don't want people to feel sorry for me, you know? And I know they do. You have empathy, but I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I want you to just use my story as an inspiration of, of you, whether if you just, just think about it, a lot of a high school dropouts, you know? A little kid that thinking that he can't he can't overcome this or I can't go to this particular profession because of, I didn't have an no education I mean I know what it is because i didn't I didn't have an education and I had a focus and I was determined to get an education i was i had a focus and determined to get out of prison and with the help of the innocent project and people with that particular heart yourself and other people that's on this particular route, i got out i got out of prison the eyes were stacked against me so I just want people to use this particular story and let them know that anything that they are facing in life that you can overcome it, but you gotta be you gotta be fearless in it, you know, you just gotta face it, head up. Don't duck it, just will go straight at it.
2: And you not only got out of prison, but you did it on your terms, and it took an incredible amount of courage and perseverance, but you're here. Right. And I appreciate you you being here. And I want to thank both of my amazing guests today. Robert Jones, 23 and a half years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, and coming out swinging strong swinging. and committed. I'm
0: still swinging. And,
2: <laughs> and the one and only force of nature, Emily Ma, the fearless leader of the Innocence Project New Orleans, IPNO. And please support their work. I do. What is the website for the Innocence Project New Orleans?
1: www.ip-no.org
2: Give Till It Hurts. Thank you. You've been listening to a very special episode of Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom from New Orleans. Once again, thank you to my guests, Robert Jones and Emily Ma. Thank
1: Thank you, you, Jason.
2: Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause, and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardus. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Kristoff recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Kristoff seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.